Come on, anybody fired up for God's word? Say amen. That wasn't an amen, but the cheer will do. Man, to say this to a room full of people and to all of you online, please now turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. For I have nothing to say today if it first doesn't begin with you opening your portion of God's word and seeing that everything that God has for us today is found in this book. Amen? Amen. Even as, as you're turning, I feel the need uh, to pray again. Father, please. We're coming to you with a measure of anticipation. Father, we believe and we know and we're trusting that the book that we hold in your hand is everlasting. Father, for your truth, it endures, it does prevail, and it never fails. And so, Father, we need your Holy Spirit to help us understand. We need your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives. We need your Holy Spirit to transform us so that we would not just come through another study but that, God, that your truth would penetrate our hearts, that we really would become more and more aware of the blessedness that we have in you. And so, God, please, do the work that you promised to do. Minister to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all of Mission Church said? Amen. Amen. So welcome to all of you at Lancaster Campus. Greetings. I miss all of you on our Myerstown campus as well. And all of you who are logged in online, uh, we long for the day uh, when we're all gathered again in person. But again, as we've said, day after day, week after week, we are all assembled under the name of the Lord today. And that brings me great joy. And so, blessed. Week three of our series, Blessed, we are on the second Beatitude, blessed, a study in the Beatitudes, which brings up this question. If you are new to Mission Church, if you've just been following along, we're saying, what in the world is a Beatitude? It's not a word that you use in everyday conversation, so it does bring up, well, you'd want to know this. If you're trying to define Beatitude, uh, the word Beatitude, uh, the root word comes from the Latin, which means Beatus, which means happy or fortunate. Anyone feeling happy today? Raise your hand. All right, now if you're really feeling happy and you know it, clap your hands. Got it. I'll try not to overuse that, but man, it works well right there, doesn't it? Happy, fortunate, but a beatitude then when used as a noun, it speaks of this. It's a state. It's a state of utmost bliss or supreme blessing. Thus, the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5 are eight statements made by Jesus at the introduction of his sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, called the Sermon on the Mount. In the sermon, Jesus declares, and he describes what it means to live out the blessedness that Jesus has already bestowed upon those whom he has claimed as his own. The blessed reality of every believer is found in him. And so, as we work through the series, as we work through the series, come on, who doesn't want to be blessed? As you go about your life, we want to be blessed. Those around us, they certainly want to be blessed. We saw week one all the hashtags that people put on their social media about how blessed they feel. And as we come to today's beatitude, the blessing that is found in today's beatitude, I'm telling you, is one that all of us, I believe all of us, just strive and crave and long for. 
There's one word that would probably stand out as it pertains to the blessing. We may want to mumble the first part and get to the second pretty quick. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We shall be comforted. And there's something about the word comfort. I'm drawn to it, man. Like, I, like, desire it. Listen, listen. I'm not, I'm not knocking comfort. Say comfort. The blessing here for sure is comfort. I'm not knocking comfort. I love being comfortable. Anyone else in the room love being comfortable? Anyone else online? Go ahead. You can put it in the, in the, in the little line underneath and just say, I, I love being comfortable. There's times where I feel like I even need to be comfortable. You ever get there? Like when you want to fall asleep. You feel like you need to be comfortable then? Here's what I know about sleep. There's two types of people in the world. There are cat sleepers and dog sleepers. Cat sleepers and dog sleepers. If you think you're a dog sleeper, raise your hand. Come on. If you think you're a dog sleeper, all right, a few. How many of you think you're cat sleepers? Raise your hand. How many of you are so confused by this illustration right now you don't know whether to raise your hand or not? That is so fantastic. All this time for three months, I've been doing illustrations. Probably none of them make sense to you, but I couldn't tell. <laughs> all the online people are like, finally, people in the room, he knows he's not making sense. Come on, cat people. Here's what it is. You cat sleepers, you got to like knead out the bed before you get in, right? You got to have the pillow just perfectly plumped and, and plushed and as it needs to go. And if you happen to sleep near a cat sleeper, you know that it takes them, I don't know, 30 seconds, five, 15 minutes to toss and turn. You're like, what in the world are you doing? I'm trying to get comfortable. No one in my life sounds like that at all. <laughs> Dog sleepers, like, slip me on a rock and tell me it's time to go to sleep. You're like, <laughs> cat sleepers hate us. Like, my head hits the pillow. I am out. Robin's like, did you hear this? No. Did you hear that? No. Man, that was quite a thunderstorm. It rained last night comfort. Come on. And you cat sleepers, you invest a lot in your pillow. The cat sleeper and my, I mean, uh, someone I know who's a cat sleeper <laughs> just got the my pillow. And you know what the my pillow promise is. It's the most comfortable pillow you'll ever have. You see, uh, pillows aren't the only thing that is sold by comfort, right? I mean, come on, you got like cars with like air conditioning coming on the backs of your legs these days. They're selling comfort in the back seat on all the kids. You have no idea. Like I grew up riding backwards in a station wagon. My kids got to know right now it'll never be a selling feature if the back seat is comfortable or not. As a matter of fact, I'm all for race, next generation, tough, the most uncomfortable seats I can find, deal. Everything is sold by comfort, comfort, accommodations, hotels, restaurants. People are looking for comfortable gyms, and they're looking for comfortable. They want to make their homes comfortable. Of course, why not? Do you want to make them otherwise? Relational interactions, we want people to feel comfortable around us. Comfort. We want to speak appropriately Corporations are investing millions and millions of dollars in interpersonal skills training. 
right? So we don't offend one another. Comfort. What about the church? What about the church? What about our spiritual pursuits? How many, how many, how many would choose where we attend and where we worship and how quickly we'll get there and, and so forth based upon the, the comforts that we find there? Consumeristic comforts have been a leading draw for church for a real long time. Comfortable atmospheres with comfortable seats where comfortable messages can be, can be delivered upon comfortable ears. Comfort sells. Comfort sells. But the question today is, um, what price are you willing to pay to have it? What kind of comfort are we really talking about here? Jesus says, my disciples will be blessed. And, and the blessing that we're looking at today, for sure, it's divine comfort. But how? But where? What does it really look like? The word blessed in Matthew chapter 5 is the word makarios. It does mean happy, fortunate, blissful. It was used to speak. It was reserved really to speak for those who passed on to a greater and to a better place, if you will, is how it was used, or of the divine itself. Come on, that's blessed. Joy, perfect happiness, inner satisfaction, and now today, divine comfort. But here's the deal. The comfort that Jesus offers is not for sale. The comfort that Jesus offers is not something you can work for. The comfort that Jesus is bringing to the table, it can't be earned. And here's the point. You can't find it even if you go out and look for it. On our own, we would never find this kind of comfort. Enter Jesus' grace, but oh, we search. Oh, we search. Oh, we long. Oh, we go after. We look for comfort in people. We look for comfort in places, positions, sometimes substance and pills, power, pleasure, passion, and in our possessions. But we don't find it because it's not found in the places where we look for it. Jesus himself said this, what would, it, what would it be to you if you were to gain the whole world, to have at your disposal all the comforts of the world, but forfeit your soul? You see, you can even extend your entire soul and turn it over, and it still wouldn't result in this kind of blessing. Today we're going to learn what it looks like to live in the Lord's divine comfort. You in on that? If you're in on that, say, come on, I'm in. All right, Matthew chapter 5, here we go. Second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Remember the scene. Jesus Christ in the end of Matthew chapter 4, he has indeed stoked the curiosity of the crowd. They are following after him. They're coming to him for his miracles, for his healing, for his goodness, for his wisdom, for his blessing. 
And as was Jesus' custom, as you know, as the crowds gathered round him, here we know this, verse one, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. Jesus, as he had custom in doing, he separated from the crowds. This separation then left a gap for his disciples to choose to follow after him to hear what it was he had to say. So he went up on the mountain, and it says, when he sat down, then his disciples came to him. Who's the primary audience? Say disciples. The disciples, believers, those who are following after Jesus, those who long to be instructed by the Lord. But what do we know? There is a secondary audience for sure. There are always those in earshot of God's word. There are always those who are peripheral viewing in on your life. There are always those who are coming around the gospel and seeing what it is. What's up? And so in amongst the disciples and, and gathered round even when there would have been this secondary group. And what are they doing? Can you begin to hear the, the sorry, I won't get too close. You begin to hear the scuttle. I get a little spray when I preach which I'm told is not part of the protocol. <laughs> what might the crowd begin to say? Psst, psst. Hey, did you hear that? He, they're saying he might be the Messiah. Like the Messiah? Like the Messiah Messiah? Like, like that one. Yeah, but we've heard about this before. There have been other guys who've come like him. I know, but they're saying he's the real deal. What is he going to do? I don't know. Let's listen in and see what he has to say. Come on. He's, he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us what it's like to live in the kingdom once he fires things up. Once he brings his revolution and he puts things right, he's about to tell us what it's going to, how it's going to go down and what it's going to be like to be one of his subjects in the kingdom. Come on. Think about what they're expecting. And then right out the gate, he comes with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Like, say what? What's Jesus doing? Right in his introduction, he is showing, if you are going to be a follower of me, you're going to separate yourself from the mindset of the crowd. And in this instance, point one today is this. Jesus is calling us to separate from the casualness of the crowd. Jesus is calling us to separate ourselves from the casualness of the crowd. You see, this particular beatitude today could not be any more paradoxical. That's a big word that means upside down. Like, there's this particular statement by Jesus couldn't make any less sense to the average listener. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comfort. Bless, bless. What's that mean again? Oh, that's right, happy. Happy are the sad? Happy are the sad? Like, the only option if you're in the crowd is this, okay, Jesus is a teacher, and he's called opposite day, and he forgot to tell the class. And you're sitting there and you're trying to figure out what in the world is Jesus doing? If happy or the sad sounds odd to us in our today's vernacular, blessed are those who mourn are literally mind-melting. 
You see the word mourn here is pantheo. It's one of nine words throughout the New Testament within the Greek that talks about grief. Yes, you've guessed it. This one is the heaviest. This one is the darkest. This one is the grievous, if you will. It speaks of the deepest, most heartfelt grief. It's a grief that you would feel at the, at the loss or the death of a loved one. This was the grief that Jacob felt when he thought Joseph had been torn bit to bit. This is the grief that is spoken of in the Gospel of Mark when the disciples were gathered together and they had seen their Savior hung upon the cross. This is the morning. Blessed are those who just grieve and they weep and they long and they mourn. And so we're left to ask ourselves, what produces this kind of grief? in the life of a believer? What produces this kind of grief? Have you ever experienced this kind of grief outside of a tangible loss? And have you ever regarded it as a blessing? It's so important in this moment that you remember that these beatitudes build on one another. The first one leads to the second one, and the third one next week will be built off of this one. And you remember the first beatitude, right? Blessed, blessed are, blessed are the, tell me, someone tell me, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who've come face to face with their unworthiness. Blessed are those who realize they bring nothing into the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring only to the cross. I cling. I have nothing to bring to my salvation. What do I have? I only have my sinfulness. And so what what produces this kind of grief in the life of a believer? It's one simple word. It begins with an S and it, it ends with an N and it has I. in the middle. It's sin. Jesus is saying, my disciples will weep over sin. They will weep. They will mourn. They will long for better. He says, my disciples will see their sin. They will see their own sin first and the tears will flow. And this is where I have to ask myself, when is the last time I wept over my sin? I mean, really. either by myself or with someone who I trust. Just have to get it out because I don't know what else to do with it. Could there be anything more countercultural than this? 
I mean, come on, friends, just think about the casualness of the crowd. Just think, just think about how we long to pass the buck. Think about how we long to blame and to make it somebody else's fault. The idea of personal responsibility, sadly, many times has seemed to pass us by. We love to pass the buck and we love to play hot potato with whose fault it is. Jesus is drawing out the casualness of the crowd as it regards to sin. You play with sin. You dance close to sin. We rationalize sin. We turn on our televisions and we laugh at sin. We're entertained by sin. And Jesus in Luke chapter 6, which is a parallel passage, many call it the Sermon on the Plain. You can study it for yourselves. Many commentators debate whether it's the same sermon or it happened at another time, but the subject matter is parallel and, and worthy to be looked at here because it really draws out the point that Jesus is coming at our casualness towards sin. He says, woe. Luke 6.25, woe to you who laugh now. This is like the anti-beatitude. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Come on, friends, think about the casualness in the crowd. Think about the casualness in the crowd of our day. Think about who was represented, represented there. Pastor Brett uh, introduced us to some of those who would have been in the crowd, and I think these types of people are among us. I myself can find myself in these camps from time to time for sure. And so the first in the crowd, of course, would be the religious. The religious in the crowd, what are, what are we saying? Our sin is covered by a system. If we're not careful, when we get really kind of locked in to a religious way of doing things, what do we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to sacrifice for that. And we got a way we handle that. And so if you just do the right thing, you approach it the right way, you jump through the right hoops, we can get this thing over with and we can move on. We got a prayer for that. Come on, church, 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins for he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And we kind of like, we love to like jump right there. Let me get to that. You see how that can bring a casualness? You think about the fact that they're under Roman rule, so there's a lot of Roman ears, I'm sure, or at least a lot of Roman influence, a lot of political power at play in Jesus' day, for sure, who would have been present there. And what are they saying? They're saying sin is to be dealt with by law and by force. Sin is to be dealt with by law and by force. And so if it's wrong, they'll figure it out. 
<laughs> if it's against the law, somebody will catch it. And the sooner we can get some legislation, the quicker I can get on with things. And it can bring about a casualness towards sin if we're not careful. You see, in Jesus' day, in that crowd, there would have been the religious who would have relied on the religious system and the special formula to get back in God's graces. And there would have been others with influence who would have looked to power. Sin is something to be punished, something to be legislated. And for sure, for sure, I get it, for sure. But we know this, right? Laws can't transform hearts. And any punishment doesn't, still doesn't set things right. How about this, the Greek, the intellectual in the crowd, the one who believes that the way we come about sin is that we, we kind of study it and we figure it out and we kind of become enlightened so that we can rise above it and we can kind of, kind of get to this place where we can inform ourselves beyond the fray of that which is some kind of intellectual enlightenment a la Gnosticism of, of the first century. Friends, listen. If social media has taught you anything, there's probably lots of things, but I know you're waiting for this one. Facts alone rarely change a stubborn person's perspective. You can post that thing over and over and over and over. Some of you are over and over. Like, oh, there it is again. I got my daily dose of reminding of, you know, fill in the blank. We're all there. I got my own facts. Send it. And we're just... <laughs> Hear me. Even truth in and of itself, for there are those in earshot of truth of this sermon, correct? Of the Jesus is preaching, who will hear the truth in and of itself, but yet it won't transform them. There's something more. Listen, hear me clearly. When it comes to these three things that I, just, that I just mentioned, I'm not downplaying them for sure. There are prayers to be prayed. And there are spiritual steps to be taken. There indeed needs to be legal accountability. There indeed needs to be legislation as it regards to that which is wrong and sinful about us. There indeed needs to be much study, and there's much to be learned about our sinfulness, and oh, that's messed up in me. But none of it, none of it can replace Jesus' prescription here of mourning. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we know that our first response to sin is grief. Our first response to sin is broken heart. Our first response to sin to that which is broken is in a brokenness in ourselves. This is what Jesus says about all these other things that sometimes cause us to be casual. He says this. The psalmist writes in Psalm 51, for you will not delight in our sacrifice. Or I would give it. 
You will not be pleased with a burnt offering right now. The sacrifice that God longs for is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, that's what you won't despise. You see it? Blessed are the Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Which leads us to the second point. We separate ourselves from the ideology, from the casualness of the crowd, and that what draws us in is to, take, to treat sin casually and rather what's Jesus calling us towards. He's asking us, he's calling us to seek contrition before him to seek contrition before him. What does it really look like to mourn our sin? First and foremost, we gotta realize, starts right here. We gotta realize the deadliness of sin. For the wages of sin is, say it, the wages of sin is death. And you remember this, the word mourn means to grieve to the point of death. Like that's what the kind of mourning we're talking about here. Like we're attending a funeral. And so I think it's actually helpful here to ask ourselves, like when we first mourn, is it, is it the mourning of an actual funeral? I say yes. Because when you realize that you're poor in spirit, what are you realizing? That I am dead in my trespasses and sin. And the first thing I have to grieve is my own death. Realizing that I've been dead all along. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And so what causes us to grieve? Realizing that I am separated from God. That if I were to die today without having been confronted by my sin, hell is what the Bible speaks of. And so what do we do? When we see our sin at this level, there's only one thing we can do, and that's submit ourselves to the great grace of God. You see, that passage in Ephesians goes on to say this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, right? He sent Jesus Christ to die for us, and watch, watch, watch. He made us alive together with Christ. By his grace, you will be saved. But what brings about that salvation? It's the reality that I need to be brought alive. The saved person, the blessed person, is the person who's actually spiritually alive. But you can't get there until you realize you're dead. You're like, that's why you pastors are crazy. Hello? I'm pretty alive here. I know, but the nagging in your heart, the emptiness that you're feeling, the race you've been running, the aging that you're beginning to feel, is a reminder that this life won't last forever. And so what do I practically do? Come on, now is when we enter 1 John 1, 9. 
Now is when we realize, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so now we have to ask ourselves, you're telling me I got to confess? What, what, is, what does the confession look like? You mean confession brings me alive? Faith brings me alive? I, I got to know what this is. Here's a good working definition of confession. To confess, it's a verbal acknowledgement of a heart. It's the verbal acknowledgement of a heart that has acknowledged, turned from, and wept over the offenses of one's sin before God. It's this, it's the verbal acknowledgement of a heart that has acknowledged, turned from, and wept over the offense of one's sin before God. A true confession is the verbal acknowledgement of what you've come to grasp on the inside. A written confession ought to have tears on the page. A verbal confession will likely have them hanging off a lip. That's what Jesus is kind of alluding to illustratively, and I know some of us are emotional at different levels, so take that as, as the point that it is illustratively. I'm not spiritualizing tears. I'm drawing attention indeed to the depth of grief that he tells us to. Confession. A true confession comes from a truly repentant heart. A truly repentant heart is born out of godly grief. Godly grief, godly grief, godly grief. This is why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. For salvation is born out of a godly grief. Oh, friends, come on. Let the tears flow. Let the lament and the failures of our own heart be released. Because the question that we have today is this. We all have to ask ourselves, given this text, have we ever grieved to the point of repentance? Pastor, you better have a verse for this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Here it comes. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Where repentance is bound up, salvation must be pursued. And for some of us, it might be going back to that moment when we trusted Christ and we remind ourselves, I confessed my sins. I believe in the Lord. He forgave me then and he'll forgive me now. Others, perhaps you've never had that moment. And so we ask ourselves, what does it look like? The text goes on, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see the earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, Paul writes. Oh, the, earn, the eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At what point, 
At, what, at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in the matter. You see, this particular verse gives us the clearest picture of what it looks like to truly repent. And so here, here's three things that I want to draw out of this text so that we would be perfectly clear about what it looks like to repent, the repentant heart. Three fruits of repentance. You can draw more out of here, but listen, here's the first three. The first is this, a dire mourning and weeping and ownership of your sin. Paul says this, Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief. Godly grief. God, I've offended you first. I've offended you more. I've offended you most. I've offended you. God gives us the strength to work out the horizontal when we acknowledge first and foremost the grief of this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, for they will then be able to make a direct move towards God. The repentant person will be walking towards sin, and at the moment of repentance, grief and a turning and a pursuing, direct pursuit towards God. A dire mourning and ownership of sin, but then a direct move towards God. Look at the text. We're eager for Christ's righteousness to restore us. And he will do it. It says, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Come on, Lord, please help me. What eagerness to clear yourselves. Oh, God, please count me as righteous again. What indignation. I am repulsed by what I've done. What fear. Father God, I fear. You're holy and I'm not. What eagerness to clear yourselves. Oh God, please help me make this right. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Lord God, I don't care what it takes. I just want to be near you. I will take whatever comes my way. I just want to get it right. Blessed are those who mourn because they will see their sin. They will turn to God and they will receive his comfort. Verse 11, at the end, you'll see a deep motivation to make things right. That would be the third. A dire mourning and ownership, a direct move towards God, and then a deep motivation to make things right. I just want to make things right. You're willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. Sometimes that's waiting for the other person to give you the opportunity to do so. But even in that, the Lord is working. Sometimes it's giving back. The Lord will guide. But we must all ask ourselves, have we ever truly grieved to that place? Have we ever experienced repentance like that? Now is the time. Right where you are, you can come to the Lord and you can say, Father, I need you to reveal my sin to me like never before. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Oh, Lord God, create a new and fresh and clean spirit in me is what the psalmist wrote. You see, in a prayer like that, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads you to that moment. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, it says. Or do you presume on the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so, friends, before we weep over the sins of others, before we weep over the sins of our land, before we weep over the sins of our world, we must first weep and confess our own sins. That's what Jesus is teaching right here. Blessed are those who mourn and are so aware of their sinfulness because that's the person that Jesus comforts. That's the person that Jesus comes by. That's the person that Jesus carries. That's the person that Jesus uses. That's the person. And so what do we get to do in this moment? Moment point three, we get to sit at the feet of the great comforter. I know it's a hard teaching to this point, but when you realize that this pain is for a moment... or for a season, or even indeed maybe there is some consequence that lasts for a lifetime. Know this, once eternity comes, it's gone. And so whatever it is you're carrying, whatever it is you're facing, Jesus says, blessed are those who are willing to mourn over that, for I'll comfort you. The word comfort here is parakleo, to be consoled for sorrows and distress. And when used as a noun, it speaks of the Holy Spirit himself as a pronoun. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who know me as Savior, for I will be with you. Blessed are those who have received me, for I will not leave you nor forsake you. My Holy Spirit, he shall indwell you. I, you are mine. And listen, if you were in the crowd, perhaps those in the crowd would have picked this up in Jesus' phraseology here. For the, he is alluding and fulfilling, even in this beatitude, a messianic promise for the Savior, the Messiah, was promised to come and bring this kind of comfort to those who mourn. Isaiah chapter 61, grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress into ashes and oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. You see, every beatitude speaks to an ultimate reality. Every beatitude is looking towards the kingdom that is to come, but there is an alreadyness to it as well. There is a kingdom coming when every pain will be gone, every sin erased, It's coming. Every sickness healed. There'll be no more need to repent in that day. Oh, God, thank you. So what do we do in between? What do we do between now and the ultimate kingdom when Jesus' return? We weep from a position of blessing and comfort. 
from a position of security. Nothing's going to rob our joy, but when we see it going down, we can say what? Oh God, we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. Except for you showing me that I am poor in spirit, I'd be right there. And so we weep. In the, spirit, in the spirit of Jesus himself, we weep over the sins of our world. Allah, think of him walking up over the hill and casting his eyes on Jerusalem as tears came down his face. In the spirit of Nehemiah, we weep over the sins of our fathers. Nehemiah chapter 1. It says in Nehemiah chapter 1 that he, he confessed and he wept over his own sin, the sins of his fathers and the sins of his land. Come on. What an amazing portion of God's word. In the spirit of Jeremiah, we weep over the sins of those who just don't see them. The prophet who came time and time and time and time again just to be cast aside. I know you're tired and your voice is probably becoming weary with some of the things that you're trying to do and say. Don't stop. Grieve the sin, do what's right. In the spirit of Paul, we weep over the sins of the church for sure. Friends, nothing changes until our heart changes. That's the point. We can grieve the world's... We can't truly grieve the world's sin until we've grieved our own sin. There's no one in this room or who's watching online right now who I don't believe wants to be part of the, the solution. Who doesn't want to be part of the solution? Jesus says this. We believe this, church. The gospel transforms. The gospel's the answer. The church is the way. Well, now Jesus is telling us how it works. Realize that you're poor in spirit. Grieve your own sin first. For in my comfort that I bestow upon you, you'll be able to comfort others. As you embrace the gospel, you'll be able to give the gospel. As you live out the life I've called you to live, others will be attracted to it. Come on, First, 2 Corinthians 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts you. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted in by God. You see how it works? You see why this series is so important? We want to be part of the solution. We want to be used by God. This is how it begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I come to grips with my own sinfulness and I bring it before the Lord and ask him to, to, for his forgiveness. At the initial point, I'm grieving my own death because I'm, a sinful, I'm sinful and I'm dead in my trespasses. And I ask the Lord to forgive me in this moment. And the scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive us and he will. For the believer, don't stop asking the Lord's forgiveness for that, for those moments which you tell. He'll forgive, he'll comfort, and he will use you. So Father, we do pray and we ask, Lord God, that you would seal this truth in our hearts this morning, realizing that we need to come to you first we need to come to you, Lord God, and do business with you even in these final moments of the morning, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.